I care about trees. Brett Kavanaugh does not. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Ezra Klein and Dara Lind. We've got a hot, off-the-presses white paper about refugees in Greece like a hundred years ago. And even, even more breaking news than that. Wait, there's more breaking news than that? We this have, is the most relevant content possible. We have a new Supreme Court justice nominee. He will be the second graduate of the uh, Georgetown Day School on the Supreme Court. If in a row. Confirmed, yes, in a row. Um, right, Neil Gore, it's not like the other one came 50 years ago. <laughs> no, 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 I mean <laughs> on the court currently. So we'll have two guys from the same high school. I think all of them will have been Harvard Law or Yale Law. Yes, although uh, if confirmed, Kavanaugh would be the only member of the Supreme Court to have a Yale undergrad degree, which as someone who did not go to Yale Law School um, but does have an undergrad degree there, I personally find the only reason but worth this, getting this a diversity. Is li- this is literally the only thing I have to say about Brett Kavanaugh. You're picked for the Supreme Court. It's huge. It's a huge career-marking milestone for you. You have to make some remarks to the public. You know this is the first thing that most people will hear of you and that a lot of people are nervous and alarmed about your ascension, the fascistic lying president who has appointed you. And so you've got to choose your words uh, wisely. Think about what you do. And the first thing Kavanaugh does is he stands out and he tells an offensively preposterous lie. And he says that Donald Trump, we've all seen the great respect for the independence of the judiciary that Donald Trump has, right? So this is like, will you reassure us at all about anything? He chooses not to. He also so said- I assume interest- the worst and I have- Honestly, nothing else to say about him. I think that in every possible way, he will do everything possible to be terrible. He also said, <laughs> strong take. He also said, which I did think was similar to that line, that no president has ever looked more widely, spoken to more people, taken more consultation and looking for a Supreme Court justice, which given that Donald Trump was working off of a list provided to him by the Federalist Society and he never considered anyone else to our knowledge is also completely untrue. I, I do want to move this, though, into a discussion of Kavanaugh's sort of idiosyncratic philosophy and particularly on one point that I think, Matt, relates to where you started us. I've been reading some old law review articles of Kavanaugh, and and maybe it would be useful to start here with some biography. Kavanaugh, uh, he worked for George W. Bush. He was eventually his staff secretary. I believe that he had the the same role that Rob Porter had in the Trump White House. Also the same role that Harriet Myers had. That Harriet Myers had. What is important about this role, because staff secretary, you might think it sounds like personal assistant or (laughs) that's not what it is. It's an incredibly important process role. It's the person who manages a lot of personnel, a lot of paper flow, a lot of information processes. So it's a quite important operational position in a White House. He was also on Ken Starr team during the investigation of Bill Clinton, where he was a real hardliner on that team. And he has some very, very unusual memos arguing that, among other things, the president should be asked on the record to give a precise list of places where he ejaculated 
onto or around Monica Lewinsky. I think Kavanaugh has come to regret some of his views during that period, but but he really wanted President Clinton impeached. And he was also a Kennedy Supreme Court clerk. Now, the reason I wanted to really emphasize the George W. Bush part of this is that Kavanaugh wrote in 2009 a pretty interesting paper for the Minnesota Law Review in which he reveals himself as having an unbelievably pro-president bias in a way that, that I have very rarely seen any judicial nominee discuss. There's been a lot of attention to, to his specific proposals in the paper, but I actually want to begin with his view of the presidency. He writes, my chief takeaway from working in the White House for five and a half years and particularly for my nearly three years of work as staff secretary uh, when I was fortunate to travel the country and the world with President Bush is a job of president is far more difficult than any other civilian position in government. It makes being a member of Congress or the judiciary look rather easy by comparison. The decisions a president must make are hard and often life or death. The pressure is relentless. The problems arise from all directions. The criticism is unremitting and personal. And at the end of the day, only one person is responsible. He goes on to make a number of observations this way, but but his basic point is that we do not extend the president enough sympathy. We do not take seriously enough how distracting investigations, criticism, et cetera, are. So then he goes on to say that he believes that Congress should pass a law that no civil or criminal investigations or lawsuits can be brought against a president during their term. And he says the reason we should do that is that the indictment and trial of a sitting president would cripple the federal government, rendering it unable to function with credibility in either the international or domestic arenas. And a president who is concerned about an ongoing criminal investigation is almost inevitably going to do a worse job as president. We know from Jim Acosta's reporting that the Trump administration is aware of these opinions of Kavanaugh. And so I think if you're looking for why did the Trump administration decide to choose an extremely George W. Bush-associated appointee, which is not what uh, Trump usually likes to do. I think you will find it here. There is no one he could have chosen who is as sympathetic both to presidential power but also to the idea that lawsuits, investigations, indictments, etc. against the president should be looked at extremely skeptically and for the good of the country should probably be squashed as early as possible. So I want to make clear that this is not a question of like Donald Trump went through all existing federal judges on the bench and picked the one dude least likely. You know, it's not that Kavanaugh's a nobody, right? Like, right, this I'm is, not arguing. No, that. no, 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 right, right. And I just, I just, I think it's worth hammering because I, I think we're going to hear a lot about like he had this really long list and he picked the one guy on the list. We've already heard Cory Booker say that, and like I think it's worth bearing in mind that. Everyone accepted when Kavanaugh was on the shortlist that it made sense for Kavanaugh to be on the shortlist. He was on the D.C. Circuit, which is typically considered the most influential circuit court in the country. He's always been well regarded as a like conservative jurisprudential scholar, that kind of thing. The other reason that I think it's worth noting this is because Kavanaugh's philosophy, not just as articulated in law review articles, but also as it's come out in his rulings as a judge, melds with his thoughts on the executive and investigations in interesting ways. The thing to kind of understand about Kavanaugh is that he's like Neil Gorsuch. He is extremely skeptical of what's called Chevron deference, the idea that 
administrative agencies get to interpret the law where Congress has been ambiguous about it. He thinks that generally, if Congress wants the agencies to interpret the law, they'll say that. And otherwise, agencies are much more constrained by the statute than like they would otherwise like to be. But at the same time, not only does he share the conservative current wing of the court's deference to the executive on national security matters and like even probably is likely to be more deferential than his predecessor Kennedy was on those. But he believes in the unitary executive insofar as he thinks that a lot of the power of the executive branch is concentrated in the president and that the president has more powers over the rest of the executive branch than you might think. He at one point ruled that it was unconstitutional to like have too high a bar for the president to remove members of an oversight board because as the head of the executive branch, the president has the power to staff that. So when you put these three things together, it means that he does have the typical, you know, conservative skepticism of regulation. And like he's known for putting regulatory agencies through their paces, only kind of approving regulations if he feels that it's very well considered within the context of the statute. But there's also this deference to the person of the president that we don't see from some of the other conservative judges or justices, including Justice Gorsuch, for that matter. But this seems too generous to me. I mean, all I know he has ever said to the public is just to lie to us about Donald Trump flagrantly. He's a liar. This Law Reviewed article, I think what's interesting about this article is not that he wrote this article, but that he served his entire career is owed to his tireless work on Ken Starr's operation, right? So like what we know about this article is that Brett Kavanaugh is full of shit. What we know about Boy, his, you are, you what we know, are not what we, inclined what we know, to be generous What we know today. about his public statements, this is why I'm not inclined to be generous, right? You have one shot to introduce yourself to the American public, right? And the president can say, Brett, I would really like you to tell some crazy lies about me. And you can say, Mr. President, I don't think it would be a good idea for me to tell crazy lies in this one statement because I would like people to have a generous estimate of my jurisprudence. And then if the says, no, Brett, we need you to go up there and lie or if he just himself, he wants to lie, like you forfeit it. Like I think that – all we know about Brett Kavanaugh really and truly is that he wants to be on the Supreme Court. He's a lifelong Republican and he enjoys lying to the American people. And so like on his deference, right, he thinks we should have no deference to the EPA, right? Like when they want to do environmental regulation, boom, no deference. Uh, but like is there deference to the president? Like it depends. Is the president a Republican or is the president a Democrat, right? So like he thinks that the CFPB is unconstitutional. He thinks that all kinds of environmental regulation are unconstitutional. But he also wrote that if the president wants to just not enforce the Affordable Care Act, that that would be totally fine, right? So it's like do, we do should you defer. draw that, that little piece out? Because his stuff on the Affordable Care Act is, is unusual because it points in two directions. On the one hand, he offered a dissenting opinion uh, on a case that a lot of conservatives don't like because they felt it created space for, for Roberts to rule that the individual mandate was a tax. He did not think that, that the case brought before him about the Affordable Care Act's unconstitutionality was valid for a number of technical reasons. But then he had a very unusual comment in there where he basically said a president who thought the law was unconstitutional basically could just not. Right. So when Obama's EPA wanted to regulate carbon dioxide emissions, he was very skeptical of that. He did not want to say, well, you know, you can interpret. But then he just was like, eh, just don't do healthcare law. Like, that's fine. Because the guy, he's a liar. 
right? I mean, so I think the question here is, it is now up to the Senate. And I'm not saying that, like, Chuck Grassley is going to put this dude through his paces, although there is a really interesting question about the timing of the confirmation. And Grassley has made some noises about not being quite as fast about this as the Trump administration would like. But I think that really this is going to be up to, in particular, Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee to figure out how important they think it is that, like, Kavanaugh said some stuff about, like, Neil Gorsuch got asked, you know, hey, you've been appointed by a president who has said some really, like, dumb and worrisome things about the judiciary, question mark. I don't think that they're going to stop Kavanaugh from getting confirmed on that basis, but I think that there is a tendency among, I mean, in particular the Supreme Court, to treat the government as if Donald Trump is not the individual in charge, right? Like, we talked about this a little bit with their ruling on the travel ban. And the question of whether Democrats want to undermine that argument or underline it is seems really relevant to what you're saying, Matt, about whether Kavanaugh is going to be allowed to just kind of say, well, it doesn't freaking matter what I said on primetime television because it's politics and like that's okay, or whether it will be called to account. I want to go back to this administrative piece of it because I, I do think I, I'm going to take the slightly more generous view than Matt, um, although I did not expect to be the generous one on Kavanaugh this morning because I'm not a huge fan. And say, I think that a lot of things with him are connected, certainly in recent years, with having decided in the Bush administration, and I will try to take the conversion as authentic, right? He was in the Bush administration during a period of a lot of national security risk. He was really bought into the war on terror framing. And so he decided that what we needed was an incredibly powerful, unquestioned president, that he'd been wrong in the past, that he he thinks the, the star investigation was operating under statutes that shouldn't exist and should be changed forever, right? He wanted to create a, a congressional um, statute that would protect not just Republican presidents from civil and criminal investigation, but also in the future Democratic presidents. It would be a, a totally binding statute. And then, again, in this Minnesota uh, Review paper, he does have a section on how he wants to see independent agencies brought under the power of the president to hire and fire. Then later, so it's not just like a theory he has, he's brought a case about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, um, which now has a different name that I keep forgetting. And it's the Bureau of Consumer, Consumer Financial, Financial Protection. Protection. <laughs> well, I guess it's not that hard then. But he he looks at that case and and one notable thing in a, a, a space of fights around that uh, agency has been that the director is independent. The director is not easy to fire. So the president cannot just easily dismiss them. And he comes in and he says that that's completely wrong. The way it's set up is unconstitutional and he wants to collapse it in so that it is a whole lot less independent than, than it is. So – Look, we don't know what happened in the discussion between Brett Kavanaugh and Donald Trump. We do know that in general, Trump has been suspicious and was reputed to be suspicious of Kavanaugh because he doesn't like the Bush administration. He does not believe Bush administration like people like him, which is true, but he doesn't like the Bushes. He knows that just a couple days ago, he was at a rally <laughs> insulting George H.W. Bush. He said terrible things about George W. Bush, about George W. Bush's administration. I mean, he's got good reason to think people who are very personally close to the Bushes may not like him. But he sat down with Kavanaugh and something happened where he decided, this is my guy. This is a guy I want. And, and there are, I think, two stories possible here. One is that NBC News reported that 
Anthony Kennedy's team had been negotiating with the Trump administration about whether or not Kennedy was going to retire. And the Kennedy's condition for retiring was that Trump appointed his former clerk who he liked a lot, Brett Kavanaugh. So maybe that's what happened here, right? And Trump just followed through on the deal. But another Which possibility- Which itself is notable, right? Uh, right. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's come back to that. I just think, though, that there's a good chance Trump would not have fallen through on the deal if he had not sat down with Kavanaugh and what he heard from Kavanaugh was an argument that the president should be a little bit more like a king, that he should have much more power to hire and fire, which is something Donald Trump, though he does not like to actually use it, certainly in theory would like to have it, that his general rulings on things like Guantanamo and all kinds of um, presidential power things have been extremely pro-presidency, and that his view of the presidency is that it is such an incredibly difficult job that whoever is in it deserves incredible respect deference, sympathy, uh, and protection. Um, One of the things he says is protection from some of the normalcies of civilian life, like being investigated for for committing crimes. And that that probably made um, Kavanaugh very, very attractive to Trump, probably uh, helped speed that along, but also makes him potentially a real ally of Trump on the court because he's just inclined um, you know, and has been inclined since before Donald Trump, although not for the entirety of his career, to be extremely pro-presidency. And that's just now combined with a president to whom that is, as far as I can tell, the central issue that animates Donald Trump. So I do think it's worth distinguishing slightly the kind of hiring and firing stuff, the unitary executive stuff from this idea of civil and criminal immunity or like temporary immunity. Because when Brett Kavanaugh talks about the president should be able to hire and fire and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and that kind of thing, he's talking about what exists right now. But when he's talking in that Minnesota Law Review article about immunity or like temporary immunity, he's saying – We currently have a situation where things could go very badly. Congress needs to fix it. And that's that is consistent with his like, you know, views on Chevron deference that Congress needs to step up and say what it wants to do and not let the executive, which also includes prosecutors, figure it out. So without saying that any of this is wrong, I think that it would be very easy to come away with the idea that Brett Kavanaugh is guaranteed to, if this ever comes up, say that the president can't be prosecuted. And I think that what we instead have is this weird belief that Congress is somehow going to make its interests known in something rather than deferring tough questions to the judiciary, which is simply not how Congress works right now. But, you know, I, to me, what was really interesting about the Law Review article is is not anything it says about the law or, or policy, but just his judgment about politics, right? So we've had in American history, like a lot of bad presidents. Um, And typically when there's a bad president, the reason the president is bad is that he has really malign policy aims, right? So like Andrew Johnson really wanted to bring white supremacy back to the South, which like was bad. But George W. Bush was like almost uniquely just like overmatched by the job. He was really bad at being president. And so like uncontroversial things like don't launch multiple wars that you lose or don't allow the country to be victimized by a horrible terrorist attack or don't preside over the total collapse of the world economic system. He felt like not one, but like over and over and over again, he just proved himself to be uniquely in all of American history 
bad at being president. And like Brett Kavanaugh's takeaway from that, as he puts in the article, is that you and I and the rest of us don't understand how hard it is to do the job. And I'm sure it's a hard job, but like literally all of the other presidents have managed to do it better than George W. Bush, right? I mean, the fun thing about that is that Kavanaugh says that Bill Clinton could have stopped Osama bin Laden if he hadn't been busy getting prosecuted by inter alia Brett Kavanaugh. Which is a very common, by the way, conservative take, sure. it should be said. But I mean, but this is the whole thing, right? So it's like the fault for not stopping Osama bin Laden wasn't the guy who comes into office, deliberately tells the agencies to put al-Qaeda on the back burner, ignores warnings, right? It's, it's like really like bought in. And this is a, a very common thing. Like people who served alongside George W. Bush say that this apparently very stupid, apparently very ineffectual president was in fact like a mastermind and we have and they say it and i i guess i believe them but it to me it's baffling he seems like a comically inept bumbler but like Brett Kavanaugh is is like all bought in on the idea that Somehow the thing that stopped George W. Bush from doing his job properly was like the Valerie Plame investigation or some shit Bill Clinton did five years previously. Like it's it's really weird. But I think that that kind of deep-seated sympathy, not for – because I, I, I hate the idea that Brett Kavanaugh believes in presidential power because, again, he does not believe in President Obama's power to halt climate change, right? He, he believes in Republican president's power to do conservative stuff. Right. And like what I read in this law review article is honestly nothing about prosecutions or investigations or immunity. It's like when Donald Trump wants to throw people into concentration camps and he says he needs to do that because of secret national security reasons. Right. When we get like Korematsu case again. Right. Like Brett Kavanaugh is clearly to me. I mean, he it's it's not a legal opinion, but it's the the politics that ooze out of this article is like, yeah, that's right. The president's secret memo is probably accurate and we should not be second guessing what he's doing. Let's take a break and I want to come back to something you're talking about here, Matt, which is the just republicanism of Brett Kavanaugh. Real talk, you know, just between you and me. The list of books that you want to read or that people are suggesting you read, it's long and it's always getting longer. And realistically, like, it is great to read books, but you are not going to read every single book that is buzzy or in the air right now or or that people are talking about. And so Blinkist is the answer to that. They can solve your long list of must-reads once and for all. This is an app that takes thousands of best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to the most high-impact elements. You can read or listen to them in only 15 minutes, all on your phone, any their library is massive. Uh, they got timeless classics like Think and Grow Rich and also like things that are hot and topical right now, like Fire and Fury, big book about the Trump administration, dominating news for a long time. They're constantly curating and adding new titles for best of lists. So you're always getting the most powerful ideas in a made-for-mobile format. Five million people are using Blinkist to expand their minds 15 minutes at a time. You can get started today. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. You go to Blinkist.com weeds to start your free trial and get three months off your yearly plan when you join today. That's Blinkist. It's spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash weeds to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan. So Blinkist.com slash weeds. Check it out.
Are you watching Explained? You should watch Explained. It's Vox's new show on Netflix. Each episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. This week's episode is on the search for extraterrestrial life. Uh, it explains the moments scientists have thought they found it. You know, space aliens didn't quite work out. You break down the math behind something that's called the Fermi paradox. It's like really important to the whole understanding of this. And it helps explain why scientists are confident that there's biology somewhere beyond Earth, even though they haven't found it yet. The episode explores one of the most fundamental questions in science and in life, are we alone here in the universe? So go find it on Netflix, search for Vox, or go straight to netflix.com slash explained. So you're, you're bringing up something here that I, I think is important, and not just to Kavanaugh, but to, to, to thinking about the court as an institution right now in, in American life. So th- there's a good piece in the New York Times this morning, and I'll, I'll put it in show notes, but it's by some, some social scientists who study the, the Supreme Court, I think political scientists. And they make the point that if you go back in the 20th century, you find a lot of ideological unreliability on the part of Supreme Court justices, that it you have routinely Democratic nominees who are more conservative than Republican nominees and, and obviously vice versa. I mean, even famously into the pretty recent court, folks like David Souter, to some degree, although I think it's a little bit overstated, Anthony Kennedy, although the places where Kennedy was heterodox were, were quite high profile and quite important. And that that is changing, that you now no longer have that, that there's an extreme reliability to the people who get picked for the court, that they no longer at all seem to deviate from ideological heterodoxy. And in the places they are thought to have made a deviation, it's actually just because like politics has become crazy. So a lot of Republicans think that Chief Justice Roberts not voting to strike down Obamacare was some kind of liberal move. I think that actually just goes to show how insane the conversation has gotten here because that was not a liberal like idea about law. Like those cases were thought to be ridiculous when they started and they in fact were ridiculous. But Brett Kavanaugh is a longtime just Republican. He worked for Republican administrations. He worked in an incredibly partisan attack on a Democratic president. Then he worked as a staff secretary for the next Republican president. Then he was nominated by that Republican president to serve on the court. He was an extremely controversial court pick. His nomination was held up in the Senate for years. Ted Kennedy called him one of the most partisan, least qualified judicial picks he'd ever seen. So Kavanaugh exists within the context of Republican Party politics as, you know, Others have before him on both sides, right? Elena Kagan was solicitor general for President Obama. Um, you know, you can go back to Roberts and Rehnquist, who, who also worked for Republican presidents. The bottom line here is the court is becoming a more partisan institution, and like this is very, very evident in data about the court. But it is not just going one way, and and to me, this is important. This is the thing I have gotten obsessed with. I just did an, an interview on my other podcast with Dolly Lithwick, and, and she was talking about it. It's not just that what's happening is. Rep- Republicans and Democrats, but but in this case, Republicans are, are putting more Republican folks on the court. It's that then the court is making a series of decisions or Republicans on the court to make it easier for Republicans to hold on to power and nominate others like them. I mean, you go back just in recent years, Citizens United, the gutting of part of the Voting Rights Act, um, even just in the, in the last term, the Janus decision, which overturned past Supreme Court precedent to destroy public sector unions, which are a key Democratic constituency, the decisions around the Texas racial gerrymandering, the decisions just around gerrymandering in general. There's a lot happening here where there's become a kind of Matt O'Brien called it a democratic doom loop, but I would call it like an undemocratic or anti-democratic doom loop, where a Republican Party that is increasingly losing the popular vote but managing to hold on to power through geography and gerrymandering is then like in really bare-knuckled ways holding their advantages on the court, like through the Merrick Garland um uh 
instance, and then putting people on the court who are in turn making it easier for Republicans to suppress votes, to gerrymander, to have allied billionaires and corporations dump billions of dollars into elections in order for them to hold on to power. And this cycle, I think, is really concerning. Yeah, I I think that there is a chicken and egg problem here because it is not the case that a conservative judge is always going to rule in favor of the conservative political position on something. Like Kavanaugh, one of his big campaign finance rulings was brought by Emily's List that was trying to raise more money than the law at the time allowed. Like he's ruled in favor of coal regulation. It's not about that. It's a question of ideologically the conservative judicial ideology that's been ascendant for the last few decades tends to give deference to the executive in exactly the places where Republicans give deference to the executive and scrutiny of the executive in exactly the places where Republicans would have scrutiny of the executive. And it's not the easiest to tell how conscious this is, but it's also worth noting that the reason that conservative judicial ideology has kind of become so routinized is because of groups like the Federalist Society that are like very much entangled with the Republican Party and that are setting the definition of what it means to be a conservative lawyer for a couple of generations of law students at this point. So it can be very difficult to disentangle the extent to which judges think they're acting in service of higher principles versus the extent to which they think they're acting in service of dance with the one that brung you. And I think that that often makes this conversation very difficult because it means, like so many other conversations, that if we start talking about intent, if we start trying to accuse people of acting with intent to take more power out of the hands of Democrats and put them into Republicans, that we get bogged down very quickly instead of focusing on the, like, discernible impact that the court has ruled on a bunch of things recently that have systematically made it harder for Democrats to get bang for their buck between votes and power. I mean, the issue, it seems to me, right, is that conservative uh, jurists and legal scholars are animated by a fairly coherent vision of what the role of the courts is, right? And it's upholding classical liberal political economy in the face of political democracy, right? That's like – that's what it what it means to them. And, you know, it, it calls back to the jurisprudence of the Gilded Age and carries forward in, in a slightly different way, but it, it works, right? I think that's the main thing about it is that like advancing the deregulatory agenda – and the idea that rights are a trump against democratic regulation of the economy is a tractable, implementable, workable philosophical vision. And progressives have not come up with an alternative to that, right? I mean, people look to the Warren court as uh, an avatar of progressive jurisprudence. But what they did was they reversed earlier Supreme Court efforts to say that you couldn't enforce civil rights law, but like net-net just like brought us to zero there. And they did a lot of criminal justice jurisprudence that was very high profile, that sparked a lot of criminal backlash. But you look at the United States of America in 2018 or in 1998 or 1988, right? And even though the United States has this strong judicial review system and even though the United States has been heavily marked by Warren Court jurisprudence, We have not ever been at any point an unusually humane 
society in our treatment of accused criminals or certainly convicted ones, right? In effect, the left was never able to like make that work. Right. To make it stick. You could have all these little formulas where you have to read people their rights, but it didn't stop the criminal justice system from being very punitive. Whereas, like, let's throw out Obamacare. Let's say the EPA can't regulate anything. Let's say the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau can't operate. Like, that that works, right? And when you talk to liberals, when we tried to do a piece that was like, what if Hillary Clinton gets a Supreme Court majority? What's going to happen? It's a good article. Dylan Matthews wrote it. But it's like, it's not that interesting. Like the most interesting thing about it is that there turned out to be like not that much meat on the bones when you called around to like prominent progressive legal scholars. They weren't like, aha, here's the thing we want to do. And so it it leaves these battles, I think, feeling very frustrating. I want to try to think through a couple pieces of this because I always wonder in these discussions how whether it looks different from the other side. So let me try to make what I think would be the the counter argument in, in this case which is everything you say on defendants' rights, on business regulation in particular, I think is completely true about the liberal jurisprudence and, and almost inarguable. But I think of Ross Douth that we're sitting here. What he would say is that, well, yeah, but liberals managed to invent a right to privacy that created a constitutional right to reproductive um, choices out of whole cloth and that's become like a foundational idea within our society that a couple of years ago Justice Kennedy joined with the liberals to say that there is now a right to um, same-sex marriage inside the constitution and that that is now – like that is now – even though that's only just a couple of years old, it is now such an accepted right. piece of constitutional interpretation that nobody's even discussing the idea that Kavanaugh and Gorsuch will join with, with the other three conservatives to overturn it. And so that there's been a certain amount of success at using rights language to create sort of social and cultural freedoms but that there has not been that success in places where liberals have had more trouble making the argument, specifically, I'd say, sort of economic, business, and administrative state questions. So I, I don't know if that's true. That's just that, no, that's no, just I mean, what I think occurs. It's, to I, me. I think there's where also an can... argument that like conservatives just brought more firepower to the juris, jurisprudential arguments of the last few decades. That after a period where like originalism was really not in wide repute, that they have built up an intellectual framework that is extremely robust and that allows for the, the things that, again, align with conservative policy preferences to be very readily defended in lower courts, whereas some of the things created by the Warren Court or even like the right to reproductive privacy in Roe are easily kind of eroded by, okay, but what about the facts in this case? What about the facts in this case? So, but I, but no, I think please. there's something more fundamental than that, right? Like you just – you would not – you could have a Supreme Court that was like whoever, right? Like it could be like the nine most left-wing law professors in America and they just like could not in the face of Republican congressional opposition like conjure up a universal health care system. Like the right. tools of the judiciary like will not do that work. Whereas if a Democratic Congress creates a universal health care system and five Republican Supreme Court justices want to tear it down, like they can and they will. And I mean progressives have wins on the Supreme Court, as you say, in the area of abortion rights and particularly LGBT equality. But they come where you can fit 
a progressive vision plausibly into the language of classical liberalism, right? So like on other things, right? So on other aspects of the LGBT rights debate, which goes not to equal treatment by the state, but like non-discrimination, right? Like you have not had the same kind of successes because it's just like it's an asymmetrical battle and something, I mean, a reason why conservatives are smart to invoke the concept of originalism is that the American constitution was crafted by classical liberals at an intellectual high watermark of classical liberalism. And so wielding it as that way is to say that like, look, the political values of property owners in the late 18th century are frozen in time forever. And there's no way through democracy or political action to override that is like, it's a little bit like checkmate libs. Like, I I don't know what you're supposed to do. So this brings up two thoughts for me. One is that I I just think in almost everything in government, government has just has a lot more capability to veto than it does to build. It's just harder in Congress. It's harder in the legal system. I think something that is also uniting a bunch of the things we're we're discussing here, both on the left and the right side successes, is that it is easier to get the government to stop doing something, stop criminalizing abortion, stop criminalizing um, the ability for same-sex couples to go to someone who wants to marry them and get married, to even – although this didn't end up ultimately happening, but even to stop enforcing a law like the Affordable Care Act statute, uh, although parts of it they struck, but, but in general they didn't. And there's just – is never going to be on, on the other side of it any more than like the Supreme Court is going to – like it is not the case that conservative Supreme Courts have found a constitutional mandate to add premium support to Medicare or to privatize Social Security, which feel to me a little bit like the analogs of, of, of the sort of very positive rights you're saying. I'm not 100 percent sure that, that there, there, there isn't a middle ground. I mean I've certainly read ideas about how you could find rights to different kinds of social equality or economic equality and then governments could be forced to, to find ways to uh, validate those rights through, through programs. Like that, that is imaginable. But I don't think that the right has had a bunch more success in that space either. I just think that a lot more of what the right is trying to do right now is stop things from happening, undo things that are happening, and that possibly that's just easier under the system. But the other thing that I just want to note, and this goes back to what Dara was saying a couple minutes ago, but it's been sort of lacing through our conversation since. I think implicitly the idea is that like on one side of the ledger are like serious legal, philosophical, conceptual arguments about how law should work. And on the other side of the ledger are sort of bare-knuckled political arguments just like about trying to achieve outcomes. And the Supreme Court is an unusual institution in that we tend to give a lot of deference at what's happening is sort of the former and not the latter. Uh, and then we read these you know, complex uh, legal decisions and we sort of go through and rebut the arguments or we accept the arguments or we celebrate the arguments or we attack them. You know, and, and people say, oh, Kennedy's decision in Citizens United was ridiculous, but you, know, you somehow have to work around it. And I just think a lot of this is a farce, not just like about the court, but like as a way of thinking about human nature. Human beings are good arguing machines, particularly when we've decided what it is we want to argue for. The human beings who get put onto the Supreme Court are better arguing machines than most. Like they've come through a process that selects for the ability to attach a really strong argument to the points you want to make. And I'm not saying there's never any independent thought, but social psychologists have now done like almost 100 years of research on motivated reasoning and how powerful a force the things we want to believe 
happens to be in shaping then what ideas, facts, conceptual frameworks we find convincing. On the one hand, like I, I find some appeal in keeping like the grandeur and and mythology of the court alive because I don't know, just losing respect for every institution in public life is maybe not a good thing in the long run. But on the other, we give them a a, a credibility that we don't give to other political actors that I, I, that I think just ends up confusing us a little bit. It's not that the arguments don't matter or even that they're not sincerely driven. It's just that this line between what people want to see happen and then like what arguments they make about what is happening and why it should happen, it's not a line. It's part of a cohesive process in which the motivation leads to the reasoning, not um, some people are motivated and some people are reasoning. Yeah. I mean, I always think that all arguments about law are arguments about legal realism. Uh, And, you know, we did a great Weeds episode while you were out about this. But I think that there's an interesting what you're saying is tempered by what Matt's saying, right? Mm -hmm. Because the fact of the matter is that motivated reasoning is always true, but it's easier to motivate yourself to some conclusions than others, right? Like we are in a paradigm where everybody is trying to fit their preferred policy outcomes into a framework of negative rights under this late 18th century document that is better suited to some of those things than it is to others. So like it kind of is worth trying to break ourselves out of the status quo bias of, okay, but what if we could say that our preferred policy outcomes are dictated by the Constitution and thinking, okay, like, what would a more responsive, what would a better Supreme Court, for example, look like? I, you know, I know that you've been tinkering with the idea of, of term limits, Ezra, but I think it's it's kind of worth thinking about, okay, you know, if political actors did not have to ultimately appeal to a particular constitutional right to have the Supreme Court referee like every important political question in America today, what would we have? Yeah. And, you know, to that end, I mean, I, I think that like the poison is actually quite deep in the system, that this is sometimes construed as just a question of justices can sort of deploy the Constitution to knock things down. But, but a huge thing is that the way – American governance works is that uh, there are an incredible amount of veto points in the political system. And the assumption among like political scientists, like people who understand politics, is that Congress to a first approximation will never do anything on any subject to change anything. And the members of Congress are aware of that. So when reformers want to establish democratic control over some area of American life, they write these vague statutes, right? So you have like the Sherman Antitrust Act or you have the Clean Air Act and they create executive institutions and they give them mandates and they try to set them up and thinking changes over time on how do I set up an institution that will effectively pursue my reform goals, right? But then in practice, that is left up to the judges, where it isn't that you go say like, oh, the Constitution says that you can't have antitrust law. You just say like, well, actually, this statute says, you know, American Express can do whatever it wants in its pricing, right? So it's the implementation of everything is in effect left up to the courts because we don't have the kind of system like they have in the UK, right, where if a UK regulatory agency hands down some interpretation and then a court says, no, 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 you got that wrong, parliament can like come tomorrow and act efficiently to change things, whereas it's very easy for a judge to say, oh, 
you know, if Congress had wanted the regulation of greenhouse gas emissions, they can just go say that. And then it's like, ha, 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 wink, wink, wink. And, you know, the fact that, like, that's not how Congress works and that these are intelligent people who are fully aware of that fact is a little maddening to me. But, like, that's... I think like the issue, like there's no like quick change that, that makes it work. We have just a very judge heavy system. Want to talk about a white paper? Yeah, let's talk about a white paper. Woo! So Greece, man. I admit I saw Greece and refugees in the description of this and I'm like, oh, great. I'm so glad that we have data coming out of the current wave of mass asylum seekers coming to Europe. And no, it's not about that. Yeah, this was like an amazing <laughs> bit of like, uh, I would say Twitter dirty pool. Um, but the but the, the, the essay <laughs> is mass refugee inflow and long run prosperity lessons from the Greek population resettlement. Uh, it's by... Ellie Murad and Sehan Orkan Sakali. It's a good paper. Obviously, there are present-day debates about refugee flows, and there was recently a very large refugee inflow to Greece. The headline of this paper is that refugee settlement in Greece has had enormous economic benefits to the communities where it happened. If you are a little slippery or dishonest in your presentation, you could let that lead you to believe that this was showing that inflow of Muslim refugees from Syria to Greece was beneficial, but it is actually a study of the upshot of um, the Greco-Turkish War of 1919-1922. What happened here for people who are not big fans of post-World War I Europe is that it used to be that the Greek and Turkish populations were very intermingled in the areas that are now Greece and Turkey and some of the islands in between. After World War I, the Ottoman Empire collapsed, there were some civil wars in the Turkish territory, and there were huge uh, ethnic cleansings on both sides of the border. So a ton of Greek-speaking Christians were expelled from the borders of present-day Turkey and put into the borders of present-day Greece. Uh, and this also happened in the other direction. So this is a study of the economic impact of the arrival of a bunch of Greek refugees in Greece. And it has a very positive result. Uh, they, they show um, that you can look at the sort of town by town at where the refugees went. And because it was 100 years ago, you can check very long-term results. And they show that having a bunch of new people move to town is really good, which I, I think is like correct uh, theoretical economics, aligns with a lot of our other studies about immigration. And I also think does almost nothing to reassure like any actual person's concerns about present-day refugee issues. Yeah, it's worth saying a thing about about how carefully this program was done. Um, yeah. Refugee households were given houses, arable land, livestock, seeds, and agricultural tools to live, work, and maintain themselves. And there was a conscious effort to maintain the same homogenous communities of origin as opposed to resettle refugees as individuals. So people came sort of as a group together and, and, and stayed together. And all refugees were granted Greek citizenship immediately upon arrival. Now, to go back to our conversation actually a second ago, you can get yourself very caught up in the sort of boundaries of the current moment's politics, right? And so then I think rule things out in advance. But it would not be at all impossible for, say, Central American or um, Mexican immigrants coming in to uh, be granted American citizenship, to be encouraged to settle in areas where there are already strong, similarly constructed ethnic communities. I think this paper suggests that there are if you if you welcome refugees in and you give them a good chance to like start making a living and get get a job and, and contribute to the, the local economy and community uh, that, that it can work. 
we may not choose to do that, but I don't I don't think I don't think we should say it cannot be done. <laughs> I mean, the question is the definition of working, because, you know, I think that the the long run economic impact focus of this paper makes it very easy to kind of conflate the integration that ultimately happened with some kind of welcoming process. And the paper actually makes it clear that that wasn't the case at all, that in fact, you know, even though these were Greeks being resettled to Greece, there was a lot of culture clash. You know, people were mocked as, as baptized in yogurt uh, because, you know, there was just there were small cultural differences and that, you know, there was not just economic competition over how land was getting allocated, but political competition. Like people had citizenship, they had political rights. And so one party developed a political machine to appeal to refugees and generated a massive backlash as people started clamoring for those refugees to be stripped of their rights so that natives could regain their natural political majority. Like, it is not clear from this paper that despite the economic integration of the refugees of this generation, that it was a smooth process for anyone involved. And when I, you know, so Matt, when Matt's saying that, like, it doesn't reassure anyone, I think it's that, right? It's not that people think that 90 years from now, uh, doing a Greek resettlement on Central American refugees would somehow turn out differently. It's that that doesn't particularly matter. What matters is a generation of fights over who gets to decide who the country's leaders are and who gets to count as a member of the nation. But that's what I, one thing that I, I do think is relevant here that, you know, I don't know if our listeners uh, will exist in these places, but that leaders of other Latin American countries should at least take this somewhat seriously, right? Mm -hmm. That um, yeah. for Mexico or Argentina to adopt a program of refugee settlement for native Spanish speakers from Central America would be a closer analogy to this program than for the United States to do it. And obviously anything like that that you do would be controversial, as Dara was saying, um, but also like an opportunistic Greek political party like made it work for them. And it's showing the economic benefits are real, right? Like if people would like to move to Argentina and get set up with like a little house and some place to work and, and blah, blah, blah. The upshot of this paper is that that does succeed in building up economies in various places. And, you know, the United States could do it too. Uh, we've talked many times about our attitudes toward immigration. But, you know, there are like degrees of cultural distance that exists here. And the countries where Central Americans are, are fleeing from are closer both geographically and culturally to southern Mexico than they are to the United States. And it's at least it's at least something the Mexican government should think about. Because I, I feel like the predominant discourse in Mexico about this situation is that the United States as the much wealthier country should sort of be dealing with the burden of outflows. And then Mexico is kind of trying to manage between their relationship with the United States and, and the situation on, on their own southern border. But there's potentially an opportunity here for Mexican politicians, the Mexican economy. And and you can apply this to Greece currently. So my wife, um, is all, Annie Lowry, is also a journalist and, and she's at The Atlantic now. But when she's at New York Magazine uh, a couple of years ago, she went and spent, I think it was a couple of weeks in Greece where the Syrian refugees were crossing over from Turkey. And, and it was an unbelievably heart-wrenching thing to see. And, and children were drowning in the water. I mean, this was like this very short boat ride 
that the EU was choosing not to make safe. Like they were leaving it un- incredibly unsafe and people were dying on something still where nobody should have died. Still happening now in Italy. Still, still happening. But one of the points she made in that piece is that – and one of the things she saw there is that, OK, you have Greece, which has been undergoing in recent years an unbelievable financial calamity that has led a huge amount of its young, highly skilled people to leave – because you would not want to be in the Greek economy if you were young and had other options, or at least there's a good reason you might not want to be there. And so now it was having all of these Syrian refugees come through, many of whom were reasonably well-skilled because it cost money to get out of Syria. It cost money to get all the way over to Turkey. It cost money to pay a smuggler to get you over into Greece, right? Yeah, there were super disproportionate numbers of doctors coming out. Super disproportionate numbers of doctors, engineers, people with doctorates. And, you know, Syria, prior to its total collapse into civil war, was a a highly skilled society. I mean, there was a real economy there. And so... This is true for Greece. It was true for for much of Europe and particularly for for much of Eastern Europe, which is having unbelievably serious demographic aging issues, has very, very low birth rates in general, whose economies are suffering from this, that if you could – and I recognize how much weight is on the could here – but if in just some world you could see the refugees coming here desperate to work and to build lives for themselves and their families as an opportunity and not just as a, a danger, a threat, a drag, a humanitarian problem, that in the long run it could be very, very good for these economies. Now, for I, I don't want to underplay that for cultural reasons, for um, nationalist reasons, that, that this isn't how people react to this and I'm not saying it's easy to, to change that. But – it's there, right? The the opportunities are there and the opportunity even in, in Greece now with the Greek issues now is very real. Like it's a country that badly needs young, skilled families to want to come work. For idiosyncratic reasons, it has become a place of incredibly steep outflow recently and it's got this inflow but all it can see is a threat and a problem. Yeah, I mean this is not only where cultural distance comes in but where I think this paper kind of diverges from the common sense understanding of – refugee and immigrant integration, and I'm not totally sure. I think this is somewhere where I'd like to see a little more data. They actually attribute part of the reason for this refugee program's success as people were settled in groups. They were able to stay with their original, if not communities, then like, Mm. you know, co-ethnics narrowly construed. That is not what you typically hear. You typically hear that the integration of immigrants in places where there are more is more merit-based selection, the integration of refugees, is because they don't have they aren't allowed to enclave themselves. They are forced to learn the dominant language. They are forced to, you know, intermarry with members so that that kind of decreases the cultural distance that you would have if you had just a massive group of people all from the same place dropped in the middle of your town. It's not clear whether the conclusion of the authors of this paper that the kind of communal nature of it helped is based on data or if it's just kind of them trying to figure out what made this program different. But if that is the case, then that really does kind of complicate the understanding of what a refugee program is supposed to do. Because the idea of these people are desperate, they're trying to make a better life, does play into the idea that they want to assimilate, that, you know, they want to leave their old lives behind. And if that isn't true, but they're going to end up more economically successful if they are allowed to remain with people who share their original culture, that is an even bigger challenge. I mean, I also wonder how how much external validity those kind of conclusions have. I, I saw a different paper recently. It was looking at Norwegian immigrants to the United States, and it had the exact opposite conclusion. It said that Norwegians who moved to very Norwegian-heavy towns did worse 
the Norwegians who moved to like huh. to oh, less yeah. cluster yeah. towns. And I think about my my grandfather who was was born in the United States but grew up in a Cuban immigrant cluster in Tampa. He always said that it was like growing up in a foreign country, like where there was no English spoken and it was um, a big break for him to sort of get into mainstream American life because you had to leave where you grew up, right, in a in a sort of profound kind of way. Again, the, the political context of this is interesting because you're talking about wholesale expulsion of Greeks from Turkey. And even though they were from abroad, I mean, the, the understanding among native Greeks was that these Greek refugees, like, were themselves Greek and they were trying to help them out, right? Not not just out of like neutral beneficence, but of some kind of specific national obligation. And then it became a question of tension over time. But like initially, I think the understanding was present that they were like all Greeks, right? I mean, as if, I don't know, like if there was like catastrophic flooding in New Hampshire, right? And like people were fleeing across the border into Massachusetts and, and Vermont. There would be a practical question of like, what to do, but I think the existence of the obligation would be pretty kind of clear. And so keeping people together suggests itself as like a, a way to be nice. But we're talking about, you know, a very agricultural type economy, uh, which is not like the way the modern day works, right? I mean, if, if you came to the United States and achieved the living standards of a Greek peasant circa 1922, that would be considered like a, a very bad outcome. <laughs> um, so, you know... It's it's tough. People like to have studies to like address their contemporary political issues. But this goes to show, I mean, it's not just that different circumstances are different, but like the world changes a lot in the past hundred years. Oh, it, if true. It's 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 hard to know, right? Like are things that are helpful if you're talking about agricultural community communities also gonna be helpful in a modern service economy? So more research is needed. Let's Much all more. go to Greece. Let's let's pull an Annie in. <laughs> I'll go to Greece. Well, no, we need to have like a, a whole Canadian province uh, expelled or something, so we can we can try it out here. All right, <laughs> that's the weeds. That that's the weeds. Final policy proposal for the day: expulsion from Canada into America. We um, have all kinds of hot North American takes. Yeah, so you know, if you have any uh, people you you would like to see expelled from anywhere. No, this um, is- <laughs> It's not going come, well. Come, come to the Weeds Facebook group. No, don't don't suggest that. It would be wrong. And, and also, Julie Bogan might not uh, yes. allow your comment. Ha, let's put it this way. Welcome your friends who are intelligent and policy committed individuals to the Facebook group as a refuge from the terribleness that is the rest of the internet. Ah, that's smart. I like that cell. I like that cell. Okay. And so thank you to our engineer, Griffin Towner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong. The Weeds will be back on Friday. Mm-hmm.